Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. The Old Testament book of Habakkuk. Found within the Minor Prophets section. If it does help you, it is right after Nahum and right before Zephaniah. So those books may help you locate it. Remember the Minor Prophets are 12 books found at the very end of the Old Testament. And they, be, they may be minor in size, but they're major in message. Remember that every book of the Bible is meant to reveal more about God. And so we have 66 puzzle pieces that are necessary to have the complete picture that God wanted to reveal to us about who he is. And so we find our way to the book of Habakkuk. As we've been looking through the minor prophets, hopefully you've been trying to learn them as you go on as we find the minor prophets section. We started with the book of Hosea. Then we went to Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Then last week we hit Nahum. Now we find our way to the book of Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk, which happens to be one of my favorite minor prophets. There are so much in here. And remember that whenever we search any Bible passage, our main search should always be, how do I see God? How do I learn more about who he is. And so with that in mind, notice with me in the book of Habakkuk chapter number 1. Habakkuk chapter 1, and notice with me in verse 1. Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 1, the Bible says this, The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Behold, Ye among the heathen, and regard, and work wonder marvelously. For I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I will raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of Habakkuk chapter number one? The book of Habakkuk chapter number one, and notice with me verse number five. I, this is God speaking, I will work a work in your days which ye will not believe. I will work a work in your days which ye will not believe. And as we're looking towards God, I'd like to entitle this message and what we want to see about God, the God of history. The God of history. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and speak to him. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. 
A God who loves us so very much. A God who is real and the God of hope. The God who sees the end from the beginning, from everlasting to everlasting. Thou art God. I'm asking that we would learn more about you this morning. That we can trust in you. That we could faith in you. That we could depend upon you. Again, the best I know how, I surrender myself to you. And ask that you fill me with your spirit. That you get your own work accomplished. That your word would become, would remain true. And speak to us in our life to draw us close to you. That we could trust you even more. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Now as we begin the book of Habakkuk. We want to start off with some context. The context of this is Habakkuk's writing approximately 600 B.C. Now, the northern kingdom has already been wiped away in 722 BC. We know that in this time, the Babylonians are going to besiege Jerusalem several times and finally destroy Jerusalem in 586 BC. So there's still several years before the destruction comes, but it's right around the corner. Now, Habakkuk is a little bit different book than any other minor prophet. The rest of the minor prophets are addressed to a people or to a place. To Nineveh. To Israel. To Edom. And you will see this that each of the minor prophets are addressed to a specific person. The book of Habakkuk is different because it's a recording of a conversation between the prophet and between God. So what happens is that Habakkuk prays and God answers. Habakkuk speaks some more, God answers. Habakkuk speaks some more and God replies. And this is a conversation that is recorded. And it's a precious conversation because we learn more about God. As Habakkuk is bringing his problems to God, God says, let me tell you, I am in control. I am in charge. Now remember, every book of the Bible tells us more about God. The same thing is true in the book of Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk is important because it reveals something special about God that some of the other books don't, may not emphasize. Here we see more about the God of history. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. But here we learn about God. Now what's going on in the context? Notice with me back in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 1. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. So here Habakkuk's beginning to pray. And he's praying about the things that he sees. He's able to look at his nation. See the things that's falling apart. And he's bringing this burden to God. As he should. When you have a burden for your nation. You see the things that are falling apart. Your response should be to bring it to God. Notice as he begins to talk to God. And what he has seen around him. Verse number 2. Oh Lord how long shall I cry. And thou will not hear. Even cry out unto thee of violence. And thou will not save. So Habakkuk cries. And let me remind you. You can tell God anything. If you're upset, you could tell him you're upset. If you're sad, you could tell him you're sad. If you're happy, you could tell him you're happy. If you're brokenhearted, you could tell him about your brokenheartedness. If you're burdened, you could tell him that you're burdened. And here is Habakkuk. He goes to God said, God, we've been praying. Well, look at our nation. It's falling apart. We've been praying. And it doesn't seem like you're doing anything. It doesn't seem like you're responding. Violence is just getting worse. Our country's falling apart more. By the way, as we go through the book of Habakkuk and see the description, it's like looking at our own nation. There's many things that has happened in the last several years that we've been praying and saying, God, we've been praying. Why isn't it fixed? 
In fact, it's getting worse. God, look at the things that's falling apart. What are you doing about it? Now, we know that God is always at work, but sometimes it may not seem that God is working, but God is. And the prophet is just sharing his heart. God, my nation's falling apart. I love my nation. I love where I live at, but it's falling apart. Notice as he describes it even more in verse 3. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are those that raise up strife and contention. Now notice this. Why dost thou, who's he talking to? God. God, why have you shown me? Why have you given me discernment to see what's going on? You know, there are some things that people are blinded to in our nation. Believe it or not, there are some people that believe that our nation is doing better than it has been. That it's on the right direction. They've done a poll and some people actually believe that. And so God is able to give discernment to his people to let him see a little bit beyond. Remember, discernment is not seeing where you're at. It's seeing where you're going. And so we're not going the right direction. You give enough time, we can see that we're shipwrecked, that we're not going the right place. And the prophet says, why do you show me this? And we pray and it doesn't seem to fix. Why bother showing us how awful things are and where people are at and where their hearts and where they're headed, that they're going to head off the cliff and, and it doesn't seem we can do anything about it. Why show it to me? Because God wants us to pray and God is always at work. He says, for spoiling and violence are before me. And there are those that raise up strife. And contention. Not only is people spoiling and plundering and violence, but there are some that are actually stirring it up even more. And that has been evidently seen in our country for the last eight, ten years, where it has been stirred up on purpose for violence, it's been stirred up on purpose for strife and more divisions. To be honest, we're more divided in our country than what we were 15 years ago. And it happened because people stirred it up. Backache's like reading our newspaper. He's praying about the same things we're seeing. It goes on. Verse number four. Therefore the law is slacked and judgment doth never go forth. Why? For the wicked doth compass the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Meaning that there are more people doing wrong than right, and so now the law's not even stopping those people who are doing wrong. They're no longer punishing people that's doing wrong. They're no longer doing anything. Again, we had something that was caused last year, and it gave an excuse but do you know there was actually a directive for officers last year not to arrest people? They could actually do some awful stuff and all they would get was a ticket. And they were trying to release more people from jail. Now, they had an excuse, but you know, this has been a trend that's going on more and more and more without that excuse. It's getting to the place where people can get away with murder. Where people are only spending eight years in jail for murder. It's getting to the place where some people aren't punished at all. Why? Because there are more people who want to do wrong than want to do right. And what's happening, the laws reflect the, the thoughts of society. And they're getting to the place where things that were legal were no, are no longer illegal. Things are changing because there are more people who are doing wrong. And therefore you can't 
stop everyone from doing it. So therefore we're not going to enforce the law. And it's like reading our own newspaper as Habakkuk's praying. Watching his own country falling apart. Now what shocked him and what would probably shock you is that God spoke to him. Can you imagine you're praying, you're pouring out your heart. And as you just sigh and just weep, all of a sudden God says, Habakkuk, what? What just happened here? I mean, it's one thing to pray, but sometimes we don't really feel like God's going to answer. Sometimes we're really, isn't it just amazing for us that we get surprised at answer to prayer? That God, well, God answered my prayer. It's amazing. Why, you weren't expecting it? Isn't that how we respond quite a bit? And so God responds, verse 5. So verse 4, Habakkuk speaking, verse 5, God now speaks. Behold ye among the heathen, and regard, I, that's God, will work marvelously. For I, God, will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. He says, Habakkuk, I've been watching, and I want to tell you something. I'm going to do something that if I told you what I was going to do, you were going to, no, that won't work. I'm going to do something so amazing. You're like, what? How in the world does that work out? You understand God is always good at that. Think a moment for salvation. Think about the problem we have. We as humans have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because we have sinned, we owe God a wage or a payment. For the wages of sin is death. That word death literally carries the idea of separation. Because we have sinned, we deserve to be separated from a holy, righteous God. And when we die, there's only two places to go. A wonderful place called heaven or an awful place called hell. So we are sinners. Because of our sin, we deserve to be separated from God. Now, if you went and got all the brightest minds from history, you were able to transport them from time. And you would bring an Einstein. You would bring a Newton. You would bring any science mind, any brilliant mind, any philosopher. And you'd bring them together and say, all right, boys, we're a think tank. Here's the problem. We need to be somehow washed away from our sins. We're sinners. We deserve to be separated from God. How do we fix this? And the brightest minds in their own way of thinking can only think humanistically. Their brightest minds can think about what can we do. I know, I know what we'll do is that if everyone pays a million dollars, that should cover us. We'll pay our own debt. Well, money cannot pay it for the wages of sin is death. I know, I know what we'll do is that we'll try to become better people. Well, that doesn't erase anything. I know what we'll do is that we'll sacrifice goats and we'll sacrifice sheep and we'll let the animals pay it. Well, that doesn't work. Some may come up and say, listen, I know none of you like my suggestion, but let's take our firstborn children. And let's put a nice little image of Molech and put a slide and put them into this burning valley and roll our children down there. And then we will have forgiveness. By the way, that's what happened in history. Even some of the Judean kings practiced that. Manasseh. That was an idea. You come up and look at all the different ideas. How do we solve this problem to make us worthy to go to heaven? Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And all they could come with religion. You know what religion is? 
It's doing something. Do this. Do this. Do this. But none of them would have came up with what God came up with. What did God come up with? How did he solve our problem? He says, I'll work a work in your day. If I told you, you wouldn't believe me. So you know what God said? I'm going to come down to earth and I'm going to robe myself in flesh. Okay? And guess what? I'm going to be born as a baby and I'm going to live among you for 30 something years. Okay? And then guess what? I'm going to die for you. God is going to come down on purpose, live with us, and on purpose he's going to die. And just because he dies, that's going to do something for us? That doesn't make sense. How does that work out? And God said, I told you I'm going to do something that if I told you what I was going to do beforehand, it wouldn't make sense to you. Think about salvation, how amazing that is. No wonder there are some people that have a hard time stepping on faith. You mean to tell me that all of my sins are paid for because God robed himself in flesh and he died in my place? That's what gets me to heaven? I don't have to do anything? I don't have to hop on one leg and say something. I don't have to get a magical chain. I don't have to kiss this blarney stone. I don't have to find a four-leaf club. I don't have to go fight a dragon. God came from heaven and he died? He willingly died? That, why, who would do that? Would you go die? Would you go die? Would you die for him? He's a scumbag. God commendeth his love towards us and why we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. It wasn't that he saw a good catch. We were scumbags who hated God. And he still died for us. Think about how amazing and fantastical that is. And if you told the Old Testament people, guess what? God's going to die and he's going to pay your price. And you don't have to do anything but accept that gift. What? Now, God gave them hints, and they believed on the promises that they had. But you imagine going to the Aztecs. The Aztecs who believed that the, um, they did believe in shedding of blood. They did believe that their uh, king was an emperor, or that he was godlike. And that every year he had to shed his blood in order to give salvation to um, to the people. So he would actually have little beads that would go in his tongue and he would do other kind of blood rituals on himself and they would have to shed his blood. There was some sort of message out there that got perverted. But you understand God's plan is that God robe his flesh and dwell among people who he can't stand to be around because of sin. Imagine how horrible it was for the God of the universe who hates all sin to live with sin. His humiliation began at at Bethlehem when he was born. And just because he died on the cross, his blood was enough to pay the price for every person and every sin. It's amazing. We would have never come up with that. The best we would have come up with is what we can do. And God says, I'm going to come up with something you would have never thought of. Well, what is God speaking about here? Remember, the things that are going on in the nation of Israel during the time of Habakkuk were symptoms. They were not the problem. What's the problem? 
Well, we go through history and we find the problem. Remember that God called Abraham from the Ur of Chaldees to go follow after him. Abraham and his wife Sarah. He took Abraham and said, Abraham, I want to make out of you a people. And I'm going to make out of you a descendants. And they're going to be so many, they'll be like the sand of the sea. They'll be innumerable. You can't count all the sea that you have. Well, Abraham said, sir, there's a problem. I'm old. My wife is old. Where's this kid going to come from? God says, it'll happen. So year after year, after year happened. Sarah was 70. Sarah was 80. No kid. And God says, don't worry. You're going to have a child. How? That doesn't make sense. You know how old it is? Can you imagine being 100 years old and saying, guess what? You got a brand new baby. Not a grandchild. Not a great grandchild. You got a brand new baby. And you're going to have to raise this kid. When you start getting calculated and saying, how long do I have? And God provided Abraham a child. And Sarah a child when she's 90. And it was a miracle. And from this child, by the name of Isaac, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And God says, I'm going to use Jacob. But he's a liar. I'm going to use a liar to bring forth my people. Is that the plan that you would have come up with? No. No. All right, I'm going to use this liar and I'm going to change his life. That's why it's so powerful when God says, I'm the God of Abraham, my friend. I'm the God of Isaac, the child of promise. I'm the God of Jacob, the liar. Because I could change lives. Well, Jacob got married and they got married again and ended up having 12 sons. And God says, out of these 12 sons, I'm going to build my nation. And then came a time where they sold one of the sons to slavery. Told dad that they lost him. And then God sent a famine. That famine forced that family to go to Egypt where they found their lost son Jacob. Who just so happened to be out of prison. And now second in charge of all of Egypt. How did that happen? God. Isn't that a wonderful, it's fantastic. You couldn't write that. And so God used this sold son To save his entire family. Brought him to Egypt. 70 of them that came to Egypt. And they grew to two and a half million people. Well the Egyptians got scared of them. Made them slaves. Told them they can't have more children. And they did. But they prayed for a deliverer. And God sent a man by the name of Moses. Who was originally adopted by the prince princess, was made a prince of Egypt, was well educated, but he tried to take matters in his own hands and he ran, spent 40 years in the desert. Now God is bringing an 80-year-old man. God likes to use old people. 80-year-old man to come and lead two and a half million people out of Egypt. All right. 80 years old, you're probably not thinking about taking over and administrating two and a half million people. Two and a half million Complaining people. And so they went, came to the place of the Red Sea, and they were trapped. There was no human way out of it. And God opened up the Red Sea. All right, people, God's going to get us out of this. How? We're going to go through the sea. What? 
How's this going to work out? God says, I'm going to work a work in your day. If I told you beforehand, you wouldn't believe it. And he did. He opened up the Red Sea and two and a half million people crossed in dry land. In order to get two and a half million people overnight, they had to go to two to... 3,000 people abreast with all of their animals. In order for that to open up, the Red Sea had to open up about two to three miles. Not just a little narrow. Open up two or three miles. And they crossed over. And God showed himself to the Egyptian, to the Israelite people over and over. And you'd almost think that they would say, you know what, there's one God, we're going to serve him, he's proved himself. And so they come to Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai, God himself spoke to the two and a half million people, the Ten Commandments. They heard it with their own ears. What was their reaction? Please, Moses, you go to the mountain. You speak to God. We can't handle it. We're going to die. So Moses went up. Forty days. And those forty days, these people who saw God's power, and they heard God's voice, Said, let's build a golden calf and let's worship it. Forty days. What were they doing? They started to worship other gods rather than the God who just saved them. The God who was feeding them. And this is the beginning of their problem. What was Israel's problem from beginning to end? They kept worshiping other gods rather than Jehovah God. And it started from the beginning. And over and over. They get to the place of, the, of Joshua. And they get to start to conquer the land. And they only conquer part of it. Why? They said because God is the God of the mountains. But not the God of the plains. Their gods, the Philistine gods, the Canaanite gods are more powerful than our God up in the plains. We can't do it. And so they didn't step by faith. They were trusting in other gods rather than their God. We come to the period of judges and the people said, you know what? Our God's not good enough. We have to start praying to Baal for rain. We have to start praying to Ashtaroth, Ishtar for fertility, for new births. We have to start praying to this God and this God. And they kept worshiping other gods. And so God would send a nation to come and to conquer them for a little bit, to occupy the land. And they would pray for deliver. No, God, you have to help us. God would answer their prayer. They would get relief from the land. And they would say, you know what? We, God's not enough. We have to go to this God and this God. And they would do it again. And do it again. And do it again. What is Israel's problem from the beginning? They kept serving and trusting in other gods rather than the God of the Bible. They finally get to the place where they're tired of having to find God for themselves. They want someone to tell them what to do. So they go, give us a king. And God says, that's what they want. Give them a king. They're going to regret it later. And they did. And what was their whole problem? They kept looking at other nations and other gods and wanting to serve them. King David came afterwards and he was a man after God's own heart. And after that he had Solomon. And you would think that Solomon who was raised in David's house. Who David taught. You, the man who God spoke to twice. What happened to Solomon. He married many wives and started to serve other gods. God spoke to him personally twice. You'd almost think, hey, you know what? I know God's real because he spoke to me. But he started to serve other gods. What was Israel's problem from the very beginning? They kept serving other gods. And so they go on. 
Solomon had a son by the name of Rehoboam. Rehoboam made foolish choices, so the kingdom was divided into two. Jeroboam became the first king of the northern kingdom. Rehoboam became the first king of the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, you had 18 kings. All of them were evil, and all of them get further and further and further away from God. So God had enough. 722 BC, he sent the Assyrians, wiped them out. Now you have the southern kingdom all by itself. And what's the problem with the southern kingdom? They kept serving other gods. The Bible talks about all throughout Chronicles and all throughout Kings during this reign. They kept building groves. You say, what's wrong with a grove? I want an orange grove. I want to have my own orange trees. Well, the groves that are mentioned in the Bible were places where they could observe worship of false god through sexual means. Whenever you see the word groves, it is not a good thing. And they took away the high places. The people had an idea that the higher I get, the closer I'll be with the gods. And those places were not a place to serve Jehovah God, but a place to serve false gods. And all throughout that, you would see a good king who would come up and they would destroy the high places and destroy the groves. And then a little bit later, you would see the groves came back and the high places came back. Then you had people like Manasseh who actually took his own children rolled them down a slide into the valley of Hinnom, the valley of Tophet, the banging of drums, and to bang out the screaming of the children as you throw them in the fire as they got burnt alive. They would bang the drums, the beating of the drums, as he served the god Moloch. And it talked about Manasseh, that he did this so much that blood ran through the streets of Jerusalem as a figurative language. What was Israel's problem from beginning to end? They kept serving other gods rather than God. Over and over it happened. Finally, they get to Habakkuk. Habakkuk is only a few years removed from Manasseh. After Manasseh, you had Ammon. After Ammon, you had Josiah. Josiah tried to be a good king, but then Josiah died. And he left his two, three spoiled brats as kings. And they kept trusting in everything other than God. Even though we had Jeremiah who was preaching for 40 years. Stop! Look at God! And they all ignored him. They all ignored him. Jeremiah spent 40 years preaching and no one listened to him. Now you have Habakkuk. Same time Jeremiah is preaching. He's looking at all the things going on. And everything you see in Habakkuk chapter 1 through 4 are all symptoms. They were not the problem. The problem was that they kept trusting in something else other than God. They kept trusting in something else other than God. So now, God knows what the problem is. The problem is not the law. The problem is not the thing is slack. The problem is not the violence. The problem is, is that they refuse to trust God. And when you refuse to trust God, you trust in something else. And that allows you to behave however you want. So God, what are you going to do about this? How are you going to fix this situation? Verse number five, behold, ye among the heathen. God, how are you going to fix our problem? Well, first of all, what's the problem? You kept serving other gods than me. So how am I going to fix this, God? I'm going to allow your country to be occupied. And you be scattered by the Babylonians. How is that going to work? I told you, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. You see, the Babylonians had even more gods than anyone else. The two cultures that had the most gods more than anyone else would probably be the Hindus and the Egyptians who had thousands of gods. Behind them you would have Babylon who had hundreds and hundreds of gods. 
So here you send the people who have a problem of trusting one God. They keep going to other sources. And the way you're going to fix them is to send them into a culture that serves even more gods than they serve? How does that work out? Told you you wouldn't believe me. And so God sent them for 70 years to be in captivity in the Babylonians. And then finally in 536 BC, God allowed the Persians to conquer the Babylonians and to free them and send the the Jewish people home. And they had a little bit of struggle at the stop. But you know what happened? They became the most monotheistic people there are. They're saying, oh, there's only one God. Now, sometimes they still have a hard time believing in that one God and believing that God sent his son. But you go to an Orthodox Jew, there's only one God. There's only one God. How did God fix that? Didn't they have a problem serving other gods? I told you you wouldn't believe me, ye among the heathen. You see, God knows what he's doing. He knows how to fix it. And often the way he fixes the problem is not the way we would have imagined. By the way, this is all introduction. I haven't got to the message yet. First thing I want to show you is that God sees all of history. Amen. God sees all of history. Notice with me in the book of Isaiah. We'll eventually come back to the book of Habakkuk, but I want to show you something. Notice with me in the book of Isaiah. God sees all of history. Now remember, we're talking about the God of history here. And so therefore we have to show you this. Remember, God will often fix things in a way that we don't see, that we don't understand. But God knows what he's doing. How can he do that? Well, to be honest, we don't have all the information. We don't see everything that's going on. We don't understand, but God sees it all. That's one of the reasons we could trust him is because there's nothing hidden by God. And God is outside of time. Now, this may cause your brain to fry a little bit, but work with me. We are stuck in a timeline. We can only go one direction in time. If I was to be scientific, I could go through a whole thing talking about dimensions. I'm not going to do that for the sake of time. But you understand, time is a scientific duration. We call it duration. We can only go in one direction. God is outside of time. And because of that, one of his attributes is that he is omnipotent. Present. That's one of the attributes of God. Now, most people define omnipresent, meaning that he's everywhere at once. But omnipresent also deals with the idea that he is all time at once. He is always in present tense. There is no past tense or future tense with God. That means the same times as he's watching us, he is also observing the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea. That's present tense to God. He is watching all of time at once in the present tense. Like I said, this is abstract to us because we're only in one. We're stuck in a time stream. But God is outside. In fact, God created time. Do you know that time fits in the palm of his hand? He is bigger than time. He created time. He started time. And when he's done, time will stop. Time is finite. Time began at Genesis, but God was before time. This is why we could say God is outside time. He had no beginning and end. He's from everlasting to everlasting. He is God. That means from the beginning of time to the end of time, he is God. Now, I know we're, we're going to get into the brain mush even more in just a second. But he is outside of time. So because of that, he could observe all of time at the same time. He's always in present tense. God sees everything. 
Notice with me, if you don't mind, the book of Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41, and notice with me in verse number 21. Now, for those of you who don't think God has a sense of humor, let me show you one where he's got a hilarious sense of humor. Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah 41. And notice with me in verse 21. Isaiah 41 and verse 21. Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. Let them bring them forth and show us what shall happen. And let us show us the former things, what they should be. That we may consider them and know the latter end of them. Or declare unto us the things to come. Show us the things that are to come hereafter. That we may know that ye are gods. Yea, do good or do evil. That we may be dismayed and behold it altogether. <laughs> behold you're of nothing, and your work is of not. An abomination is he that chooseth you. Here he's talking to these false prophets. And he's saying, alright, listen, if your God is real, give me something that he's ever predicted. Tell us anything that he ever said in the past that's come true. You know what? We'll even give you a chance. Why don't you tell us something now from your God, if he's true, tell us something that will be happened so we can be amazed when it happens. Come on, anyone? Then he says, you know what? The one who chose you to be his representative is an abomination and stupid. If that's the best he could do, he can't find someone who could represent him well enough. You know what God's saying? I see all the time. I could show you predictions that he made and it came to pass. It's now our history. One of the best evidences that the Bible's true and one of the best evidences that our God is real is prophecy. An answered prophecy. One third of the Bible is prophecy. Most of it has been fulfilled, meaning we could go back in a history book and look at it. And what we see is that there's a God who sees all of history. He can say, this is what's going to happen. He can say what happened before. He can tell Micah, hey Micah, let me tell you something. My chosen one's going to be born in Bethlehem. Write it down. Amen. He could go to David and say, David... I want to tell you what the Son of God is going to go through on the cross. Right? Psalm 22. And God can go through while because he's everywhere at once. That's why he was able to pull John. Do you know that John got to participate in the rapture? He is part of the rapture. And what's happening in the book of Revelation is that John is there watching what is happening. And he's got a first century mind watching future events. For example, today we have such thing as cable and news things. We can watch something on TV that's happening in Jerusalem right now. Well, as he's recording this, he doesn't know what table is. All he could say is that everybody is watching Jerusalem and watching the people rise from the grave. And everybody at the world saw it at the same time. Well, he doesn't, can't explain cameras and how it works, but he could say that the whole world watched it at the same time. And he is watching, he is participating in those events and he's writing it down. And he'll ask a question every now and again. What is this? Just write it down. Yes, sir. God is able to direct his prophets. Write this down. This is what's going to happen. Because God can see all of time. Now we're building on something. We're saying that God is the God of history. And one of it is that he knows what he's doing because he sees all of history. All of it is revealed before him. But not only does God see all of history, but he controls all of history. He controls all of history. Notice with me in Isaiah 44. 
one of my favorite historical passages. Notice with me in Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, Isaiah is writing this at 700 BC, thereabouts, approximately 700 BC. Probably about 722, 720s, 700 BC. The events that is occurring in Isaiah 44 and 45 is occurring in 536 BC. 536 BC. So you could do your own math on that, but that's quite a distance away. And I want to show you, starting in Isaiah 44, notice the tail end of it, starting at verse 26. Isaiah 44 and verse 26. That confirmeth the word of his servant, and performeth the counsel of his messengers, that saith to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be inhabited. And to the cities of Jerusalem ye shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. Now when Isaiah's writing Isaiah, he's in Jerusalem. But he's seeing an event where Jerusalem's destroyed and has to be rebuilt. And all of the, the cities around Jerusalem is going to have to be rebuilt. That hasn't happened yet. He's still in Jerusalem with all the cities still standing. Verse 47. That saith to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up the rivers. That saith of Cyrus, he is my, the Lord's shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, saying even to Jerusalem, thou shall be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Again, Isaiah's there at the temple. But in the future, the temple is going to be destroyed. In the future, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And it's going to have to be rebuilt. Verse, uh, chapter 45, verse 1. That saith the Lord to his appointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have sold in, to subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of the kings to open before him the two leave gates. And the gates shall not be shut. And I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. And I will break in pieces the gates of brass cut in sunder the bars of iron and I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I the Lord which call thee by thy name am the God of Israel now this is speaking about an event that happens in 536 BC and notice that God uses the name Cyrus this is actual person named Cyrus the Great who is not born yet in this, Cyrus the Great is one of four people listed in Scripture who was named by name before they were born. And by the way, Cyrus was a Gentile. He was a Persian. He never trusted Jesus. He's not in heaven now as far as we know. He never believed in God's promises. But yet God says, I'm using him as my shepherd to get my work accomplished. God is in control of history. He brought Cyrus up. I meant to even go through the history of Cyrus and where he came from is amazing. I'm running out of time, so I can't do that. But Cyrus was supposed to be put to death as a child, but he was protected and was brought to the throne. He became the leader of the Persian Empire, and it was under Cyrus that he destroyed the Babylonian threat. How did he destroy it? Well, Babylon bragged about its walls and that how they were so thick that you could run four four-horse-drawn chariots at the same time riding around it. They were huge walls. They were impenetrable. Well, what Cyrus the Great did is he went up above the Tigris River, Euphrates River, and blocked it off. Just as the Bible said. And the Bible said that 
the rivers would run dry in chapter 44 and verse 27. That saith to the deep, be dry and I will dry up the rivers. In verse number 45, or chapter 45 verse 1, it talks about that the Lord saith to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have hold of him, to subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates and the gate shall not be shut. Now underneath the Babylonian walls, the river went through and it had a two-leaved gate, a two-door gate. And it was meant to allow water to go through, but nothing else. Well, when the river dried up in the middle of the night, the two guards looked at it and said, you know what? We don't really like this place anyways. They opened the doors and took off. And Cyrus and his army were able to walk underneath the city through the riverbed to get into the city. Now, at the same time, the Bible talks about in history, Daniel, Daniel was called because Bethesar, the third uh, or the second ruler of Babylon, saw a disembodied hand writing on the wall. And as he wrote the wall on his wall, that the king started to shake, his knees began to rattle, and he wet himself. By the way, it says that in chapter 45, that I will loose the loins of kings. That's a good fancy way of saying he wet his pants. And God said, guess what? I said that was going to happen 150 years plus before it happened. You know, that's pretty detailed. I mean, what kind of false prophet uh, could get that much detail in? That's not just something that could fit anything. That's pretty specific. By the way, it's history. You can look in Daniel where the guy wet his pants. What should I do? And Daniel came in and tried to explain it. And he said, I'll make you third of the kingdom. He says, why bother? Tonight the kingdom's going to be taken over. And it was. Cyrus was coming under the gates right before that or right after that happened. God just doesn't see history. But he's controlling history. He's moving things in places. Things that you don't even see right now, God's moving in a place. It could be that God is bringing up a church like this that is going to be used to help revival come. It could be that there's a praying people that comes. It could be that he's doing something we're not even thinking of. And we said, how is this going to work? It looks like it's getting worse. And God says, nope, this is going to get better. It could be that America as a country falls. Maybe we turn into a monarchy, a dictatorship. You said, how is that better? God knows what he's doing. It may be that American Christianity is so pathetic that the only way that it will fix it is persecution. You understand God's in control of history. And he's moving the pieces the way he is. And God knows what he's doing. You say, okay, that's good. Well, turn back to me, Habakkuk, and let me answer this question. What's man's reaction to the God of history? How should we respond because God sees all of history? How should we respond knowing that God controls all of history? How should we respond knowing that God is always at work? Even in our darkest days, how should we respond? As we come to the book of Habakkuk, we could see how Habakkuk responded. And we could make that same application. The first thing I'd like to show you, how's man's reaction to God's will? First of all, it should be obedience. Obedience. Notice with me Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 1. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon a tower and watch to see what he, God, will say unto me and what I shall answer when I'm reproved. That word reproved carries the idea he's expecting God to correct his behavior. 
He's willing to be obedient. Remember, you can learn a lot from a man by how he takes rebuke. If God says, this is what you need to do, his answer is, yes, sir. It'll be done. There's an idea of obedience. Why? Because we could trust God. Think about this. Because God is outside of the timeline, he could see all things at once. Let's take the Colorado River. Let's say that a bunch of you got on a raft and you went into the raft and you're going down the Colorado River. Now, up ahead, to an hour before you, there was some people got in a raft and you traveled for an hour and an hour behind you, someone else got in a raft. Well, you know, you can't see the people behind you and you can't see the people ahead. But if you had a helicopter flying overhead, he could see all three of them. And if you had good communication with that helicopter, that helicopter could guide you and say, there's some rapids up ahead, go to your left. Hey, there's some rocks coming up, I want you to go to the center. Hey, there's some things up here, go over here. And with that great communication with someone who could see everything before you, he can guide you where you're supposed to go. Our response should be obedience. Yes, sir, you tell me what to do. You know how to fix this problem, you tell me what to do, and I'll do my part. I want you to put me in the position where you can do your work. There should be obedience because we trust him. He knows where we should be, how we should respond, what we need to do. You know, a lot of the problems that we have in our life, we say, God, fix it. But then God says, I want to use you to fix it. And we're like, no, I'm good. God usually does a work on us before he can do a work on others. Can you trust him? Do what he told you to do. He says, I will see, watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I'm reproved. What else do we see? How else should we respond? Not only out of obedience, but also with this. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Notice with me in verse number four. Behold, His soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. You understand, faith is not in a, it's not how much faith you have, it is the object of your faith. I'm looking to God, my trust, my hope is in him. I am trusting in him. Now, oftentimes, if you say, what's the opposite of faith? Most people would say disbelief. According to Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, that's not a correct answer. What is the opposite of faith? Notice with me verse 4. Behold, the soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the opposite, the just shall live by his faith. According to verse 4, what is the opposite of faith? Pride, the soul that is lifted up. You see, you are either trusting in yourself or you're trusting in, you're either trusting in God or you're trusting in something else. That's quite simple. You're either trusting in God or trusting in something else. You live your life by faith or you live by yourself by force. Either you trust God or you think that you can do it or someone else can do it on your behalf. You either trust in God or trust in yourself. That's a true statement, by the way. Can you trust God more than yourself? Can you depend upon him or do you feel like you have to do it? Well, us doing it is not the answer. It's the problem. We're in the way. The opposite of faith is pride. What else do we see? Notice with me Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse uh, 3. Chapter 3 and verse 2. Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 2. Notice this. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, 
Revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known. And wrath remember mercy. You know what we see here? Is that God is always at work. God I trust that you're doing what you're doing. I'm just asking for you to revive your work. He says judgment's coming. The Babylonians are coming. In fact, all throughout chapter 2, God describes the Babylonians and describes how they're coming. Describes what they're like. And he says, I'm afraid. But you know what? I see that you're at work. I'm trusting you. Lord, in the middle of wrath, remember mercy. Revive us in the midst of years. Revive us. By the way, how did he expect revival to come? In the midst of persecution. Where do we expect revival to come? Probably because of persecution. The only thing that could fix American Christianity is to put our faith in dependence on him. And that's only going to happen when we can no longer trust in ourselves. Revival will come, but God is always at work. And he's recognizing that God is always at work. There's one more thing that we want to see here about trusting in God That God is the God of history. That he sees all of history. That he's in control of history. What is our response? It should be obedience. The just shall live by faith. That God is always at work. But notice this. We worship God in the midst of hard times. May we say it according to our theme. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Notice with me in verse number 17. Yet. Yet. Let's go to uh, verse number 17. Sorry. Um. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall there be fruit in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fall. The field shall yield no more meat. The flock shall be cut off in the fold. There is no herd in the stalls. Meaning, everything's falling apart. Remember, they're an agricultural society. So, the crops are failing. The animals are dying. We have nothing. Our livelihood's falling apart. Everything's going apart. But notice the next word in verse number 18. Yet... Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Why? The Lord God is my strength. Remember the joy of the Lord is our strength. Can you trust him? When everything's falling apart, you can live in the yet. Yet, I will rejoice in God. Hey, things are falling apart at work. Yet, I will trust in God. Things are not working out at home. Yet, I will trust in God. Because the joy of the Lord is my strength. Remember, the joy comes from knowing him. Because he's the God of history. Because he's always at work. Because I know he's doing something. I can still rejoice in him when it seems like it's falling apart. God is always at work and I trust him. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord my God. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength and he will make my feet like hinds feet. And he will make me to walk upon my high places. To the chief singer. Notice this. He's singing. To the chief singer. He says this is a song. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I can have a song in my heart. I can rejoice. I can know that God is in charge. My joy comes from knowing Him. The joy of the Lord is my strength. You understand our joy doesn't come from circumstances. They come from God. Our joy doesn't come when everything's going well. It comes from God. It's knowing Him. That knowing that God sees all of history. Knowing that He's in control of all of history. Knowing that He's always at work. I can rejoice in God at all times, even when it's falling apart. I can still sing to his praises to him. I can still worship him in the midst of hard times. I can rejoice in the Lord my God. I will joy in the God of my salvation. 
the Lord God is my strength. What are we saying? Because God is all control of history, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Where does your strength come from? May I say this? Do you have joy? Remember, joy is not a happy face that you paint on. It's a peace that passeth all understanding. Can you have peace when everything's falling apart? You can if you're getting your strength from God. And that comes from knowing Him. You understand? It could be that for America, the worst days are still ahead. There's no promise that God is going to restore our country. We could pray for revival and that God would change hearts. But there's no promise that He's going to keep America, America. It could turn into a dictatorship, and it very may. It may come to the place where Christianity is outlawed, and it may. We can still rejoice in God. We can still get our strength from Him, knowing that He's in control. It could be that there is some outlining thing that we don't even see that is wrong with our American Christianity. And God says, I'm going to work a work in your day. If I told you what I was going to do, you wouldn't believe me. What I'm going to do is I'm going to allow your country to be destroyed and only Texas is going to remain. Praise the Lord. And I'm going to make it so so there's no more Bible. We don't allow the Bible here. And God may do that so that way real Christians have to trust in Him. And Christianity will grow stronger and multiply because of persecution. You say, how does that work? God is in control. If he told you ahead of time how he was going to fix it, you probably don't want to know. But God is in control of history. We can trust him. Now, we could say we can trust him. I have to ask the question, are you trusting him? Maybe you've been finding yourself, instead of faith, you've been depending upon yourself. You've been trying to find out ways for you to fix this person, your situation, this health, this deal, this thing. Can you trust God? God is in control and he's always at work. Most of the time we're just in the way. God wants us to get out of the way so we can fix the problem. Meaning that we try to do it ourselves and we keep messing it up. Let God work. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 Five three zero six three zero eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three zero eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.